I was at a Christmas party two weeks ago. My coworker came in late and they're giving him shit about it. And he was like, it was really weird. I was coming down from work and all of a sudden there was just all of this traffic. There was just police everywhere. And traffic was just at a dead stop. And finally we start crawling by and people are all, you know, stopping to see what was going on. And, and when I got up there, it was just two guys fucking. No. <laughs> <laughs> which no way he did that is if we're using this a throwback to something that happened in our lawrence v texas odyssey uh he said two guys having sex the problem was though all my coworkers had no idea that it was a joke obviously so they they really thought that over on uh, kent des moines road up here that the police had stopped traffic <laughs> for two guys fucking it's just two guys fucking <laughs> Welcome to this episode of Kick-Ass Queers. I'm Rachel Stewart. And I'm Larry Womack. Well, Larry, after the sprawling epic that the Lawrence v. Texas saga turned out to be, I decided to go with a slightly simpler and straightforward topic for this episode. Oh, thank God. I, I do not have another miniseries in me. So what is this non-epic subject you have decided to tackle? Well, this episode is particularly relevant to me because the kick-ass queer we're going to be highlighting wrote a book that is significant in the queer world and is sort of an emotional weighted blanket for me. Today, we are going to be covering the life and legacy of American author Nancy Garden. I'm really excited because I think this is the first topic we've come across that I think the co-host, in this case me, knows nothing about, right? It's not surprising for lots of reasons, and one of which is that she, while she is a kick-ass queer, and she was an author who wrote within a queer genre, uh, she wasn't necessarily writing particular books that you would have necessarily known about. This might be a little bit of a spoiler, but in her obituary for Nancy Garden, Victoria Brownworth of Lambda Literary started with the following, quote, she wrote the book that all lesbians wanted to have as teenagers. She wrote the books kids of lesbian and gay parents needed to read. She was an icon and treasure and every other overused cliche about writers who are larger than life, except in her case, it was all true. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Nancy Garden was the author of over 37 fiction and nonfiction books. What she is most widely known for is the critically acclaimed young adult novel Annie on My Mind. I will get into the significance of the book in just a bit, but to say that it had an impact on my own comfort with my sexuality would be an understatement. I'm not trying to make fun here, but Annie sure. on my mind definitely sounds like something that a 1970s <laughs> singer-songwriter <laughs> would have put to guitar. <laughs> it, it's, it was done by Dolly, Emmy Lou, and Linda. The trio. <laughs> it was done by the trio. It was we beautiful. Love the trio. I really do, man. Those harmonies. All right. So, who's Nancy Garden? Well, Antoinette Elizabeth Garden was born May 15th, 1938, in Boston, Massachusetts. At a young age, Garden legally changed her name to Nancy. Okay, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> so, she's born named Antoinette. And she changes it to Nancy. Then she writes a book, Annie, on my mind. I'm just throwing that out there. I I see that. Yeah, okay. I do see that. 
Yeah. We all process our trauma in our own ways, Larry. A lot of people process trauma by writing lesbian romance. (laughs) Oh, God. Okay. She grew up in the suburbs of Boston, New York City, and Providence, Rhode Island. As a child, she escaped into the world of literature. After high school, Garden pursued a career in theater, earning a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Acting and Stage Lighting from Columbia University. After several years of working off-Broadway and doing summer stock, she went to Columbia Teaching College to obtain her master's. Okay, so she gets her degree in theater, starts working off-Broadway, and then is like, you know what, screw this, I'm going to go back and get my master's, do something else. She starts teaching. Teaching's not for her. So she starts editing. She starts working for publishing houses as an editor in New York City. And it was uh, at this point in 1971, when she was working as an editor, that she published her first two books. First one, What Happened in Marsden, a novel centered on racial violence, and Berlin, City Split in Two. This is about Weimar Berlin, though, right? Yes. Yeah. I mean, of course. I mean, not to assume that a queer author is writing about Weimar Berlin, but... (laughs) But... I think that's all they did in the 70s, actually. (laughs) She's she's on point here. (laughs) Christopher Isherwood was just having workshops all across (laughs) town and stuff. (laughs) Oh, God, right? It was a nonfiction book about, you guessed it, East and West Berlin. That's post-Weimar. Post-Weimar and post something else yeah and then that okay and then that yeah shortly after the publication of her first two books garden and her longtime partner sandy moved back to their home state of massachusetts where she continued to work as an editor in publishing after those two first books were released garden had approximately a book a year published until her death and she was absolutely genre busting while she's known as a young adult author, she wrote fantasy, historical, nonfiction, monsters, and of course, LGBTQ novels. There's a lot of overlap between supernatural fiction and LGBT stuff. Like, if you took the gay out of vampires, there would be no vampires. It's really fascinating that you mentioned that. Some unintentional foreshadowing. Mm. I'm not saying that Annie is a vampire, but vampires do come up in a minute. The book Garden is most famous for was her 1982 young adult story, Annie on My Mind. The book tells the story of two high school girls, Liza Winthrop and Annie Kenyon. After a happenstance encounter at the New York Metropolitan Museum, the two girls feel an immediate connection, and after knowing each other for two weeks, they realize they are in love with one another. Talk about U-hauling. That is that is very lesbian. So right? they're in love after two weeks? Literally. I don't even think it's, no, it's, it's two weeks. Yeah, it's, it's two weeks, uh, I think, to like the day. Well, it's their anniversary. I mean, I, <laughs> I mean, honestly, we've all been there. That's, again, already it's tracking as, as a, a, a book that, that um, seems credible. How old are these characters? They're 17. Yeah, see, Romeo and Juliet knew each other like seven hours, and they were and then they, in society. And, yeah, and they already like killed, killed themselves over each other. So, again, it totally tracks. Mm-hmm. Their relationship turns from platonic to romantic and eventually becomes sexual. Ooh. I know. As it takes place in the early 1980s, the actual nature of their relationship is hidden from everyone until they get caught, as one character says, in flagrante delicto. I'm just happy that a character in the 80s would recognize lesbian sex when they came across it. (laughs) I mean, you know, they were actually, like, I think she fell in. I don't I don't <laughs> I know. Well, and it's so funny, too, because it's like 
when you think of how many times we have, they're just best friends and their fingers are literally inside each other right now. And they were roommates. And they weren't. And, and, and the thing is, is not too much of a spoiler alert here. Like they didn't get caught literally like doing it with each other, but they definitely got caught in a state of undress that cannot be explained in many other ways. Her bra fell off. So I thought it would make her feel better if I popped mine off real fast. <laughs> well, that's actually... Just while we were looking for her panties. There is actually, there is a whole scene where um, what happens is the person who catches them is one of the teachers at Liza's private school. And even though they're not on school property, they're in, they're in private. It's, it's not on school property by any means. She gets caught by a teacher and because of that, Liza is subject to expulsion for engaging in homosexual acts. And they have to go through this whole hearing. And one of the excuses they use is, you know, girls at that age just like to try each other's clothes on. So this is this is very the children's hour, right? Oh, it's funny that you mentioned that again, too. All right. It's two for two. You know what? I'm I'm better at this than I thought. I thought yeah. I was going in blind. Nope. Nope. You're going in perfect okay. on this one. All right. So here's the deal. Here's all of these. Here's this plot line. Here are these tropes. This sounds like lesbians of the 20th century. This book is one of the first to bust the more insidious tropes that color most of the lesbian fiction of the 20th century. In particular, there are two tropes that made their way into most lesbian-centered media. The first is the predator and prey trope. This is where you have one woman, usually older, who enchants and lures a younger woman into a dangerous, immoral, sapphic trap of lust and sin. A male fantasy, right? Yeah, but the problem is, is that, and I don't know if we're ever going to have enough content for it, but I think about Anne Bannon, who wrote the Bebo Brinker series, and only way that we could get representation for a long time there was through sort of this male gaze. And so the, the gatekeepers of this kind of information was... You know, we got it if it was written with a, a male audience in mind. And sort of the after effect was that lesbians at least found something where they were sort of represented. I, I remember a few years ago I read and I love Roger Ebert. I'm not trying to trash talk him here, but I read his review of Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Yeah. Which has a lesbian relationship. Right. Right. And his review was like. These are empowered, independent women. Oh, my God. Right. <laughs> and I'm like, I love that movie. And sure. But also their tits are fully in your face the whole film. It's the Oppenheimer effect. I still genuinely do not understand why Florence Pugh needed to be topless every single time she was on the screen. That is very much the male gaze thing. The, the unfortunate reality, though, was is the only way we could kind of get any kind of lesbian representation was through this lewd and lascivious sort of framing of it. Oh, and I think we should clarify the Bebo Brinker Chronicles were a series of lesbian pulp novels, right? Right. Yeah. So Bebo Brinker series was some pulp novels that came out in the 50s and 60s written by Anne Bannon, which is a pseudonym. I can't remember her real name right now. It's a series of texts that works on what we call the excess, which is that to sort of straight audiences, it reads like kind of a normal pulp novel. But to gay audiences, it definitely has sort of a different framing to it, which only can be read within the excess of sort of homosexuality. And we see these tropes in things like women of evil, girls in 3B, Satan's daughter, women's barracks, how dark my love. 
and private school. Oh my God. I love them all. Every single title is perfect. Right. I was able to get that list from Amy Villarejo in her essay entitled Forbidden Love, Pulp as Lesbian History. Now, Larry, I don't know if you remember, but you gave me wrapping paper years ago that had the covers of all these lesbian pulp novels on it. Mm. And I Were still have it. Ones that we... Really? You kept the wrapping I st- paper? I kept. Yeah, I still have it. I love uh, that so much. I'm way too lazy to wrap gifts today. I used to put it up in my office. And there was a complete subgenre of lesbian media to center on this trope of dangerous dykes is the lesbian vampires that graced the screen in the latter part of the 20th century. Oh, my God. Those hammer Carmilla Constein yes. trilogy. Yes. Yeah. Oh, those are Ele- good. Hammer should have been making like The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby. But they didn't know how to do that. They did know how to put tits on the screen. <laughs> so oh, that's yeah. what they did instead. Oh, yeah. They were. I mean, when they did it, they, they did it well, question mark. This common theme found in films like Dracula's Daughter, The Hunger, and Daughters of Darkness. Oh, my God. Dracula's Daughter. Whenever Gloria Holden is on screen, mm-hmm. you're just mesmerized. Which I think is the point, honestly, because, you know lesbian vampire mesmerism love it so the second trope annie on my mind busts is by having a different ending than the stereotypical endings lesbian stories usually have until annie sapphic stories generally had one of two endings either the characters realized the error of their ways and they went back to their life of compulsory heterosexuality or they died those are about the choices you had according to lesbian media of the 20th century. Yeah, I'm about to bring up the children's hour. Most people who know it are familiar with the film version starring Audrey Hepburn and Shirley MacLaine. For those of you who do not know what the children's hour is, you should watch it. I mean, it's it's obviously slightly problematic from a homosexual point of view, but it's, it's amazing, amazing story. The story centers around a terrible little girl who gets in trouble and to try to save herself claims that she saw Hepburn and McLean's characters engaging in immoral acts with one another. Of course, that creates a scandal. And as we learned in our 20 hour saga of Lawrence v. Texas, there was a. (laughs) I'm right here, Rachel. There was a real concern with letting the gays teach children. So the story covers whether or not it actually happened. In a real twist, McLean's character realizes that even though they never did what the girl claimed to have seen, she is actually in love with Hepburn's character. This epiphany is the climax of the film, and it is such a destructive realization that McLean's character winds up dying by suicide. In the play, it is a dramatic ending where you hear the gunshot off stage. In the film, it was changed to having her hang herself with the camera angled down to see her shadow swinging as Hepburn's character breaks into the room, horrified. All because of little Veronica Cartwright. Fucking bitch. She, you know, aliens also. Actually, yeah, she was. Yeah, I felt bad for her by the end, but also like a little bit in Witches of Eastwick. She kind of <laughs> plays the same character a lot. She, she, she really got typecast from day one, didn't she? <laughs> The Children's Hour was the perfect example of the perils that went along with choosing lesbianism. Just the mere accusation of it was enough to create chaos and throw a person into disarray, 
And the realization of being queer led to either a renouncement of it, Hepburn's character, because she's gay. I don't care. James Gardner was hot, but those two are gay for each other. Or suicide, mm-hmm. McLean's character. For generations, lesbians specifically and queer folks in general were told by media and society at large that it was better to be dead than to be gay. Annie on my mind busts these tropes. First, both girls are the same age and there's no feeling of coercion from either. While Annie realizes earlier than Liza does that she's probably gay, she does not lure Liza into her den of sapphic sin. In addition... Liza explicitly mentions in her narrative that neither of them specifically focused on how their relationship made them gay. They just focused on how complete and right being with each other felt. It is the very normal experience of two adolescents on the cusp of adulthood navigating love and life. They just happen to be gay. See, and this is a, this is a problem with all media even still. And it's not just gay people. It's also people of color in particular. The stories tend to revolve around the identity, or at least their presence in the story does. It's changing a little bit so that things are sort of throwaway sometimes. But if you wanted to make a movie about Latino characters or black characters, and you didn't want it to sort of revolve around that, major studios aren't going to give you a bunch of money for it. Publishing houses aren't going to be that interested in it. It's almost as if the identity isn't allowed to just inform a text. Mm -hmm. It has to be the thesis of the text. Exactly. It becomes the singular identity. It doesn't matter anything else that you are. This is the thing that you are. And I think what's interesting is obviously their queerness is central to the book. It's about the two of them falling in love and obviously the, the fallout from that. But there is really the centering of like, these are just two normal kids who are about to graduate from high school and they're figuring out their life. And they also just realize that they're attracted to one another. And you know, that this is obviously something that's also not necessarily being supported by society. Undoing these tropes was intentional in Gardens Park. During an interview with Catherine T. Horning of the Children's Cooperative Book Center in Madison, Wisconsin, Garden talked about her own experience of trying to find queer-themed books as a young adult, saying there were, quote, very few books in the 1950s, and even just looking for books was scary, let alone buying them or taking them out of the library. What if someone saw? Encyclopedias said we were sick or immoral, doomed to loneliness and promiscuity. When I finally found the courage to look up homosexuality in a public library card catalog, no computers in those days, I did find a few adult books listed, but they were always unavailable. That was a subtle form of censorship, I'm pretty sure. Some adult books that were available then, or a bit later, by Mary Renault, for example, contained characters who seemed to be gay, but that wasn't openly stated. Perhaps that was the only way publishers felt they could publish them or writers dared to write them. At the local bus station, I did find, when I was sure no one was looking, some cheap paperback whose titles and lurid covers made it clear they were about lesbians. Those books usually ended with the lesbian character dying in a car crash, being sent to a mental institution, or turning straight. 
And Mary Renault, I hope we're pronouncing her name correctly. She was a lesbian who wrote mostly about gay men. I, I feel like she's someone we'll visit eventually, right? Yes, we should. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The choice to have Annie and Liza go through conflict and adversity has a remarkably different ending than the ones lesbians were usually presented in media. They wind up happy in the end. Oh, I mean, that that's really sweet. Now, they do still have to go through basically a trial, though, right? Yes. So it's... So it's not all fun and games. Well, Garden shifts the focus and blame of the misfortunes Annie and Liza experience from being the result of some inherent internal defect they have because they are gay to their traumas suffered being the result of ignorant, discriminatory beliefs and practices of benighted adults in positions of power. That's something we still struggle with, right? I think that's a huge thing. If you're not necessarily used to reading the genre and internalizing all of these things of essentially in the end of whatever happens to you is your fault. So, you know, good luck. These shifts within Annie and my mind are are subtle, but really powerful because what the book is telling us is that it is okay to be gay and that it's not our fault if we get treated badly for being gay. Mm. Like and what that's year was this? 1983. That was a rare message at that time. And this is a more commonplace belief now. But honestly, at the time, it was revolutionary. As the Margaret A. Edwards Award Committee said when awarding Garden their prestigious Lifetime Achievement Award. Quote, Nancy Garden has the distinction of being the first author for young adults to create a lesbian love story with a positive ending. Mm. In the New York Times obituary for Garden, Margaret Fox noted that Annie on My Mind was recognized in 1999 by the trade magazine book list as, quote, one of the few classics in the field of gay-themed young adult literature, and that in 2000, the School Library Journal featured the book on their 100 books that shaped the 20th century list. Mm. That's really interesting because it's getting cited as super influential at the same time. I doubt Scholastic was publishing it. No, no, like, no. It was uh, Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, which is uh, usually does fantasy novels, which was her publisher, which was kind of a huge deal because when she, she wrote it, her agent said, send it to the publisher. And he, she's like, I don't think they're going to want to publish this. And he, she mm-hmm. was like, I think they're going to want to publish it. And they did. And Annie on my mind was and continues to be a big deal in queer circles. So, Larry, what do you think happened when Annie on my mind started to get mainstream attention? The attention became negative. (sighs) So, yeah. In addition to being a prestigious award-winning book seen as groundbreaking, it also holds the title as one of the most frequently banned slash challenged books of the 20th century. One of the more notable incidences surrounding the book happened in 1993, a decade after it was published. A Kansas City LGBTQ group called Project 21 partnered with the local GLAAD chapter to donate Annie on My Mind and Frank Mosca's All American Boys to 42 Kansas City high schools. Parents got so inflamed by this atrocity that they burned the books in protest. Wow. When Garden was first told of the incident, she is quoted as saying, burned? I didn't think people burned books anymore. Only Nazis do that. Yeah. And as we discussed in the Brian Stonehouse episode, I think, one of the first targets of 
mm-hmm. Nazi uh, censorship. It was, it was a book burning at the Institute for Sexual Research. Is that what it was? was I, I think, yeah, I think exactly. it was something close to that. Yeah. <sighs> so they're burning the book. Flash forward to the end of 1993. That's crazy. Right? That's they were, crazy. It's, they're it's not like it's it. Harry Potter. Like, <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's... And, and 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 I just I need to I need to say this. I have read the book and listened to the book an unhealthy amount of times. It's such an innocuous book. It is a young adult book. It's so tame. There is a discussion of sex and and they do they do have sex. It's not described in detail, right? It is done much more from the like position of like wow, how amazing does intimacy feel when you're with somebody who, you know, you're meant to be with? We're pretty selective about the sex scenes that we get outraged about when it comes to kids. Because I remember when I was, I don't know, 11 or 12, whenever you're in sixth grade, reading Flowers for Algernon. Oh my God, yes. That's got some racy stuff in it. Um, I mean... Beautiful book, of course. Glad I read it, but... Damn. Well, and there's the double standard, you know, not to uh, not to put him on blast because I love you so much. I just need to say that if this makes it and he hears it. But, you know, when I was 10, 11, again, maybe not the greatest time to be reading this. I read it by Stephen King. Oh, my God. The gangbang. And the the child, the children gangbang in the sewer. Right. And, And because that was the only thing Beverly could offer. You know, and, and people laugh about that. They're like, ah, ha, ha, ha. Like, it never makes it in the movies. And they're like, maybe he shouldn't have written it. And there is a little bit of outrage about it. On the flip side, we have these two girls who are like, I would like to spend the rest of my life with each other and have very sort of like processed and deliberate discussions about sharing their bodies with each other. And Kansas City is burning the book. <sighs> I mean, in their defense, Kansas City. Where, what, what honest, are we expecting from them? Honestly, though, where are the kids who need these books the most? can't it's places like that right because they're not getting that message anywhere else Mm -hmm. so let's let's flash forward to the end of 1993 so this happened in 1993 at the end of 1993 the superintendent of the schools in olathe kansas decided that all copies of annie on my mind should be removed because quote the controversy surrounding the book was disruptive and the best way to deal with it was to remove student access to garden's novel Mm -mm. and he meant all copies including the ones that were there literally a decade before the copies Project 21 donated. Damn. So this got the American Civil Liberties Union, better known as the ACLU, involved. In addition to the Olathe School District, the ACLU sued individual parents, the superintendent, and the school the school board for violation of the First and Fourteenth Amendments. Ooh, the current Supreme Court's least favorite amendments. Right. They're like, They're not big we... on the fourth either, honestly, but like <laughs> those two. Big on the second, though. In what became Case versus Unified School District number 233, Judge Thomas Van Beber ruled that the plaintiff's First Amendment rights were violated, but their 14th Amendment rights of due process were not. <sighs> He ordered the Olathe School District to return the copies of Annie on My Mind back to the shelves of their libraries by January 1996. It took him three years to put it through court. Okay. One thing that strikes me about this is some of the overarching similarities with Lawrence v. Texas, which would happen five years later. First, there is the basic principle being argued whether or not gay people should be allowed to exist. Mm. I vote yes. 
Yeah, I'm I'm big on it. The entire argument, which is echoed by Justice Scalia half a decade later, is whether or not gay people can participate and be reflected in society. In this case, it is whether or not children have a right to be exposed to the stories and imaginings of queer characters and media and literature. Another thing that stands out is how very high-profile organizations like Lambda, GLAD, and the ACLU spend years and an unimaginable amount of money to try to fight for the rights we all should have under our Constitution. And I know that this is not just the reality for queer people, but all marginalized groups when fighting for a modicum of rights that are meted out in dribs and drabs by those in positions of power. I can promise you that the readings I was assigned in high school, like For Whom the Bell Tolls, or To Kill a Mockingbird, or The Catcher in the Rye, were way more disturbing and subversive than any on my mind could ever get close to. I'm pretty sure it was For Whom the Bell Tolls. There's the whole scene where she's pregnant and they have to give her a C-section. And this is back in like the 40s. And C-sections back then were where they literally opened you up Mm-mm. through the middle. And, and I mm. remember it's like described in detail, them having to essentially just like rip her open to get this baby out. And I read that book 25 years ago, and that thing is seared in my mind. And that was part of honors English as mm. this requirement within high school. Also, you're not a serial killer now, right? You can actually be exposed to unpleasant things and live it's not going to warp you forever and and that's exactly my point right is that that was really disturbing and it obviously Mm -hmm. really sort of cemented uh, a memory in my mind but it was still deemed as like oh well that's that's okay like it's it's worth it like the 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 quality of of the experience and what you get out of it is going to be worth these uncomfortable moments And the unfortunate reality, though, is that we get such a double standard when it comes to that. Annie on my mind becomes more dangerous for showing two girls being happily in love with each other. It's like, uh, well, we can't expose our children to these sorts of things because it will it'll make them that. The response that the Olathe, Kansas superintendent had, which is, Well, our children just shouldn't even be able to read it. Like, it's obviously causing problems. So let's just remove it from the library so they don't need to be exposed to it and it's no longer going to cause any kind of problem. And, you know, we're going through this in a really big way right now. I think we're having a really similar moral panic where some parents have gotten it into their mind that if their kids see a drag queen, they're going to transition. (laughs) Like it's spontaneously, is, it's it's nuts. It's absolutely nuts. Like, which is honestly, thing. honestly, one of the reasons why Nancy Garden's been rolling around in my mind for a long time, but wanting to do this episode because we we are absolutely seeing this weird, bizarro renaissance of these ideas, right? Where it's like if you read one book, if a drag queen reads you a book in a library. The child is going to come out and automatically audition for like RuPaul's Kindergarten Drag Race. Which I would watch the shit out of, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Pitch to RuPaul, Kindergarten Drag Race. Oh. Um, <laughs> toddlers and Tierras, but, but, but drag. That's, but that's okay, right? And a, a perfect example, right? Mm-hmm. Toddlers and Tierras, totally fine. The sexualization of five-year-old girls, fine. What's really interesting to me is I think that the same people can look at that and be like, 
well, that's not sexual. That's just sort of an exaggerated femininity, right? But they can't see that same thing on a drag queen. Right. They can't, they ha- they automatically think that's sexual. Yeah. Super weird. It's, it's so, well, and that's where, you know, the, the arguments start to fall apart, right? Talking with people like that makes you feel like you've taken crazy pills because you're like, I just don't understand exactly how you're applying these rules and why do they seem like they are so relative? Because that's what they are. They're relative. So this, of course, this this situation in Kansas City was not the first, nor was it the last time Annie on My Mind was subject to censorship and controversy. It still gets banned. The frequent challenges against the novel made Garden into a crusader against censorship. As a matter of fact, her experiences with the burning and banning of the book led her to write her 1999 novel, The Year They Burned the Books. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little on the nose there, Nance. I feel like maybe workshop that title. 1984 was taken, but could have named it 1985. 1993. (laughs) (laughs) Hyphen, the year the Burn Their Books. This was another novel that centered around the homophobia and bullying queer youth experienced in the 1990s, which in part one of Warren Sweet, Texas, we talked about just how terrible it was to be gay in the 90s. Not fun. No. One thing that has struck me as I've learned more about Nancy Garden over the years is her openness with her own experience as a queer person in American culture. Again, in her interview with Catherine T. Horning, Garden discusses her own process of coming to terms with her sexuality. She retells how she realized as a teenager that she was gay when her intense friendship with her best friend Sandy turned into a romantic relationship. They would get caught and banned from seeing each other, caught again and banned again, and on and on. When Sandy's mother found a letter Nancy had written, she told Sandy she would have to stay away from Nancy or else she would be sent to secretarial school instead of college. Garden mentioned that her own mother tried to call Sandy's mother and tell her it wasn't a big deal, but that just made the matter worse. Heavenly creatures all over again. Oh, 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 God, such a good movie. Uh, Mm. Like every other lesbian in the history of the universe... Nancy and Sandy were off again and on again throughout their teens and 20s. Then in the late 1970s, after both had sown their wild oats, Sandy and Nancy got together permanently. They split their time between Massachusetts and coastal Maine. In 2004, Nancy and Sandy got married in Massachusetts, which had just passed their own same-sex marriage act, which was possible because of the Lawrence v. Texas decision the year before. Yay! I'm happy for Nancy, but this on-again, off-again thing is concerning to me. So they got married in 2004. They were together for, I think, 44 years after the on-again, off-again. I mean, they, they literally were together pretty much their entire lives. You know, when rural straight people do it, I'm like, that's sad. When lesbian novelists do it, I'm like, that's sweet. Right? Marry like- your high school sweetheart. And I look at it and it's like... They weren't exactly encouraged as teenagers to be together. So it's understandable on how maybe they didn't have the the most solid foundation at 17. Also, they were 17. Right. Garden was also candid about her own coming out with her father. Her mother died when she was 21, so she never had the opportunity to tell her. Although she felt her mother would have been sympathetic and understanding. She didn't tell her father that she was gay until right before Annie on My Mind was published. She was still hesitant, but didn't want her dad to find out when the book was published. 
She said it was confusing for her because he was upset about her sexuality, but really loved Sandy. In addition, he would not display Annie on my mind with her other published works. Mm. When she tried to talk about her sexuality, her father would get uncomfortable and change the subject, but he saw Sandy as one of his daughters. I feel like I can relate to that situation. No, I, I do too. I absolutely understand that one. I think a lot of gay people actually understand that one. Mm. What's most lovely about the story arc of Annie and Liza is that whenever Garden was asked about where she thought her two protagonists would be today, she would always answer with some variation of the same. This particular one comes from her obituary in the New York Times. Quote, I imagine that after college, Annie and Liza moved in together, that they stayed in touch with their families who accept and love them, that Annie is still singing and Liza is working as an architect and that perhaps they are married, depending on where they live, but since they may well live in New York, they are probably married now, and that they may even be bringing up children of their own. Truly, a happy ending that endures decades later. I like an author who will let a happy ending stay, who's not going to write a sequel that's like, and then their lives went to shit for 30 years, now they're meeting again. Right, yeah, I like that she just lets it lie. Nancy Garden died in 2014 of a massive heart attack at the age of 74. That's kind of young. Yeah, yeah. As I mentioned before, she was able to see the effects of Lawrence v. Texas on the landscape of gay rights with her and Sandy's marriage in Massachusetts in 2004. But she did not survive to see her marriage become nationally recognized. I like to think that Annie on my mind was and continues to be one artifact out of millions that helped us along the long path towards sexual equality. I love that. I love that. And I'm going to read the book now. I've never read it. Sorry. But it's I'll get on that. It's a, it's a young adult. It's a quick read. I think you're underestimating how many young adult novels I read. <laughs> All right. So huge thanks to Nancy Garden, Ellis Hansen, Amy Villarejo, Victoria Brownworth, Catherine T. Horning, and the Children's Cooperative Book Center, and Margaret Fox. And to Annie and Liza, who taught and continues to reassure that 17-year-old Rachel still living inside me that it's okay to be gay. I love that. And thank you, Rachel, for sharing this. This was very, very sweet and uplifting and timely and all of the good things. So I really well, thank appreciate you. it. Well, thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this, please rate, review, and share with all of your favorite people, the Moms for Liberty, and all the administrators at the Olathe, <laughs> Kansas School District. You send can them find, a copy. Send them a copy. You can find more information about this podcast, including back episodes, on our website, kickassqueers.com. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and MySpace circa 2004 at kickassqueercast. Please join us for our special holiday-themed episode where we're going to be discussing... King James. Yeah, that's right. The version. (laughs) The the version! (laughs) It's going to be our very own Doctor Who Christmas special. That's going to be a good one. I feel like this is going to be some angry letters. <laughs> We're not making anything up. And honestly, there's a lot less speculation in this one than I was expecting. Yeah, we we haven't had to have too much wild speculation recently. And man, is it going to make some heads explode when we find out there's very little uh, speculation about exactly how the King James Bible came to be. Listeners, thank you so much. And remember, while you're all off writing your own happy ending, continue to kick ass.
<laughs> that's, oh, that's probably going to get cut. For, for, that's definitely going to get cut. <laughs>